This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. We turn this morning to the familiar passage of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. We'll read that as our scripture reading this morning. Isaiah 53, hear the word of God. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. 
for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. We read that far in God's holy and inspired word on the basis of this text, as well as on the basis of all of Holy Scripture, we have the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism. And today we turn to Lord's Day 5. Lord's Day 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and we consider the instruction, the doctrine of Scripture as explained there. Lord's Day 5, the beginning of the second part of the Catechism on man's deliverance. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? God will have His justice satisfied. And therefore, we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? By no means, but on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us None. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. What sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? For one who is very man and perfectly righteous and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Lord's Day 5 that we consider this morning, we find a beautiful transition Lord's Day 5 transitions us from the first section of the Heidelberg Catechism to the second section of the Catechism. It transitions us from the first part, which has to do with our sin, how great my sins and miseries are. And Lord's Day 5 brings us, brings us, transitions us to that second part about how I might be delivered from such sins and miseries. As a transition, Lord's Day 5 does not allow us to forget the first section. We might want to move to the second section and, and blot out of our memories the first section. But Lord's Day 5 says no. As a transition, 
it makes us hold on to that first section regarding our misery as it brings us to the second section regarding our deliverance. That is so important. And so I remind you this morning, the concepts of the misery that we have. The three Lord's days about our misery, remember, have to do with our depravity, our, the origin of that depravity, and then the judgment or punishment for that depravity. Those are the three Lord's days and three topics about our misery. Lord's day two we saw was that our misery is total depravity. It is that sin. We are prone to hate God and our neighbor. And we saw that the law of God especially exposes to us that sin. It says love and we instead hate Lord's Day 3, we saw the source or the origin of that depravity being in Adam, the first Adam. Because of his guilt, we're guilty. And because of his corruption, he passes on down to us a corruption, which is that depravity, out of which springs forth all sin. And then we saw in the last Lord's Day, Lord's Day 4, that we consider how our misery includes the wrath of God. The fiery wrath, the hell which we deserve, temporal and eternal judgment. That's what God's justice demands. And today, Lord's Day 5 transitions us asking, since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape. Notice the negative. We might want to go to the positive, and we will. But the negative. Is there no way? There is a skepticism communicated. There is a pessimism here. Is there no way that we may be saved from this misery? There is no way, is there? No way. And we must understand that. There is no way of escape from our misery, our punishment, and no way to be received into God's favor. No way but one. No way except for one. That's the emphasis of this Lord's Day. Our impatient human minds our impatient, depraved natures, I might say, would like the catechism to move more quickly past this transition that makes us hold on to the concepts of our depravity and misery. We want to get to the relieving, burden-lifting truth that there is a way, that there is one way. We want to rejoice in that salvation in Jesus Christ who is the way, But the catechism says, wait, we're going to slow down. Slow down, not yet, before we get get to the only possibility for our salvation, we must dwell on the impossibility for a little while longer. It's a slow transition. And that for good reason. I said it's according to a sinful nature that wants to keep on moving. It's according to perhaps a short, a short attention span that is cultivated in our fast-paced culture. But the catechism says, no, contrary to all that, 
we slow down and say, there is no way. And for good reason, I say, for our proud human nature in sensing our misery would like to find some other way. A sinful nature that we have, our sinful nature, would like to find at least this, some other way in addition to the way, Jesus Christ. Mankind foolishly imagines other options for how we might be delivered from our sins and miseries. Like Adam and Eve of old, mankind tries to cover himself with fig leaves, cover himself with other options for escape and deliverance that are vain. That's the reason for many religions, cults, and even churches of today. They offer all sorts of options for our deliverance. And the Lord's Day, Lord's Day 5, takes us through this slow transition that we might see. There is no other option. Perhaps young people, young adults, some of you who are using your brain a little more as you go through college or as you talk to others in this world, you might wonder at times, what if, what if there is something else out there in a different church, in a different religion maybe, some other philosophy, some other option besides the one I've been brought up with, the only way Jesus Christ taught here in this Christian church. Maybe there's something else out there that could, could give salvation, deliverance, happiness. Maybe there is another way. And the Lord shows us in His Word today in the doctrine of Lord's Day 5, no. Children, here's an illustration. Think of a house on fire. Imagine that you are in that house that is burning up. You can feel the heat on the walls all around you. And you look, you look around you in this burning house and you see a window, you see a door, you see a passageway and, and you consider these different options for escape. And after you look out that window, which is really far up above the ground, and you look down that passageway and you see flames and you try the door and you touch that handle and it's hot. You recognize in considering all the options. There is no way. No way to escape this fire. Someone must rescue you or else you are done for. That's what this Lord's Day does. It shows you that the fire of hell, hotter than any fire burning a home, will consume you. And there is no other option but God Himself must rescue. Consider this doctrine with me under the theme, no way to satisfy God's justice. No way to satisfy God's justice. First, the satisfaction needed. Second, satisfaction not found. And finally, satisfaction one way. 
in this transition from our misery to our salvation, the catechism brings up a critical word, a very important word, and that word is throughout the points of our sermon, satisfaction. Satisfaction is the key of deliverance from God's wrath. The Catechism uses this word in Lord's Day 5 repeatedly. Notice that. Answer 12. God will have His justice satisfied. And therefore we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or another. Question 13. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? Question 14. Can there be found anywhere else one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? To be saved, there must be satisfaction. And that's a biblical word. We find it in Isaiah 53 that we read. In Isaiah 53 verse 11, when God describes salvation through the suffering servant, and we know who that is, He speaks of satisfaction in verse 11. He, that He is God, shall see the travail of His, and that's our Savior's soul, and shall be satisfied. No, salvation does not consist, first of all, of your satisfaction of you feeling satisfied, though that will be the fruit of salvation, and that is something we consider a little bit this morning and tonight too. But before that, our salvation consists of God being satisfied with us. God must be satisfied for us to be saved. Salvation is not a health and wealth on this earth where we find some sort of earthly satisfaction. Salvation is not freedom from all hardship in this fallen earth, ridding ourselves of all physical sickness and poverty, but salvation is God's satisfaction with us even though we are sinners. More specifically, salvation consists of God's justice being satisfied. God as the judge, the just judge being satisfied with us. That word satisfaction or satisfy means to do enough. To do that which is sufficient. And the classic example or illustration or symbol of justice being satisfied, I bring up to you again this morning a familiar one, but a very important illustration, and that is of old-fashioned scales, what we call a balance sometimes. So children think of those old-fashioned scales with two pans that are hanging at the end, at the ends of a bar, and, and that bar is balanced in the middle at a fulcrum, they call it. And think now of how that scale is tipped to one side. Here is satisfaction symbolized. Satisfaction is symbolized when enough, that's the word satisfaction, enough, that which is sufficient is placed on the other side of the scale so that there is a perfect balance. 
That's the picture. That's the symbol of satisfaction regarding justice. On one side of the scale, there is to be thought of the crime, the sin, that which has been done against the law. And on the other side of the scale must be placed enough, sufficient suffering and deeds which will satisfy the law and the judge. God's justice must be satisfied. Enough must be placed on God's proverbial scale. Not enough that an earthly judge might deem to be enough. But that which God deems enough. There are two main things. Two main things that must be done or must be placed on this side of the proverbial scale for satisfaction of God's justice. First, there must be the full suffering of all the punishment that the crime deserves. The punishment must fit the crime. And someone must suffer it completely unto its end. Remember that sin is not small. No sin is small, children. We considered that last time in Lord's Day 4. But one sin deserves the infinite wrath of God. One sin deserves that infinite wrath of God because sin is against the most high majesty of God as Lord's Day 4 question and answer 11 says. And so justice... Just punishment for sin is eternal, infinite suffering. Isaiah 53 speaks of that. Verse 11, He shall see of the travail. Notice that word travail. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Travail refers to pain. It refers to anguish. It refers to trouble. For there to be satisfaction, someone, not only to the body, but Isaiah speaks specifically, as to his soul, must experience infinite travail. Extreme travail. That first of all. But that still is not enough. If you put infinite punishment suffered on this side of the scale, it doesn't balance out yet. Because the second thing must be done for satisfaction. And this is often forgotten. This is often ignored. But it's so important, especially in our day and age. And that is, that the soul that suffers punishment must do so with perfect love. That is, he must do so with perfect obedience in his heart to all the Ten Commandments that we read this morning, as well as have a heart of perfect love dedicated to God. That's the only way that this, that this balance, this scale will balance in God's justice. Perfect love. And that should be common sense. For if a person, while suffering the punishment of God, hates God, during his suffering of that punishment, 
shakes his fists at the God who is bringing upon him his wrath, as all ungodly do, then he only, as Lord's Day, as our Lord's Day in answer 13 says, increases his debt. He must have perfect love or else he increases his debt of extreme suffering and punishment. Isaiah speaks of the one who must make this perfect satisfaction in verse 11 as well. He must be the righteous servant who justifies many. That is, he must be perfectly righteous with his body and soul. An extremely heavy work must be finished and placed on the other side of God's scale of justice. One must suffer the infinite wrath of God and all the while love that God with perfect love. The very same God who is pouring out His wrath upon Him. This work of satisfaction is necessary for salvation. It is essential. Without it, there is no salvation. Only in this way may we, as the Catechism says, escape punishment and be again received into favor. And beloved, this is where every other religion and every other form of Christianity, so-called in this world, fails. It ignores and minimizes this truth. The world and all false Christianity teach that God does not really take sin that seriously. He winks at sin. He says everything is going to be alright. He'll take it easy on you. You're relatively a good person. But true biblical Christianity sees God for who He is. True biblical Christianity shows God to be the just God who demands punishment and perfect love. Every human being senses this. Even though, as I said, false Christianity and the world around us may deny it and minimize it, the necessity of this satisfaction, every human being senses this need. You sense it right now in your own conscience. Romans 2.15 speaks of a conscience also bearing witness. Their thoughts, meanwhile, accusing or else excusing. Fallen man knows there is a hell. Fallen man knows in his conscience that he deserves punishment. That satisfaction must be made. He can sense, though he doesn't always think clear, clearly of this, he can sense those scales imbalanced. And that the fullness of God's wrath must come upon him. And thus the deepest need of every human heart is to know, ah, oh, the justice of God. 
is fully satisfied. Only when the human being knows God's justice is satisfied, He, the Most High God, is satisfied with me, only then is there peace. Only then is there what we call a human satisfaction through life. And true joy and happiness. Here is the diagnosis. This is how critical this is. Here is the diagnosis for the agony of every human soul in this world. The person doesn't know. He doesn't know the gospel. That God is satisfied with me. God impresses upon the conscience of every soul that this must happen. Is there a way? Is there some way here upon this earth whereby this satisfaction can be made? The human heart loves to invent all sorts of ways. Foolish options. The believer knows intellectually, you know, I know you know, is intellectually, the believer knows there is one way only, but the catechism forces us to focus on other ways that we might through what we call a process of elimination see that there is no other way but one. The catechism, the end of answer 12, gives us two categories, two main options, out of which we can come up with all sorts of different options. But the two categories are these. Either by ourselves or by another. By ourselves or by another. Let's consider ourselves first. This is man's foolish default setting. Yes, your own and my own foolish default setting. We still do this with our old man. We attempt to satisfy God by ourselves. We forget the catechism's answer when it asks, can we ourselves make this satisfaction? We forget. We say, yes, by some means, rather than by no means. On the scale of God's justice, we try to put our successes. We try to insert something that we have done. We didn't lose our temper today. Well, comparatively, when we, when we look at those, those people in the ghetto of Grand Rapids, Michigan... We're more righteous than they are, and we put that on the scale of God's justice. We came to church today. We're a member of a true church of Jesus Christ. We make confession of faith. And while these actions are called good works in Scripture, and we're called to do them, the error of the human heart in his self-righteousness is to try to put that on the scale of God's justice. And that's gross sin. 
We feel guilty for past sin, perhaps, and we try to do better. Not that trying to do better is sin or wrong of itself, but our improvement as we try to do better, we try to insert on the scale of God's justice. We try to make up for what we have done. Pray more. Give in the offering plate more. Be better parents. And so on and so forth. We seek to satisfy God. And we might even use the term, which is a biblical term, there's a proper way to understand it. We're trying to please, to please God. And yes, we're called to please Him. But don't use that term to please Him in that sense, in this sense, satisfying God's justice. Because, beloved, remember, satisfaction of God requires suffering the infinite wrath of God and doing so with perfect love. Only that satisfies God's justice. That's impossible. To understand that impossibility, think, think hypothetically for a few moments. Let's say that early on in your life you were able, though you're not able, but you were able to stop sinning. You were able to sorrow for your sins, repent of your sins, make prayers and confession, and then, and then have a fresh, clean slate and, and, and not sin the rest of your life. Let's say today, hearing God's Word, hearing God's law, you're, you were able, though you're not able, but let's say you were able to stop sinning from this day forward. Are you able now with your good works and even a perfect life to satisfy God's justice? And you know the answer? No, because you still have to endure. You still have to suffer the travail of soul of God's infinite wrath. Good works don't make up for your past sins or the original sin you have in Adam. If we do all good works perfectly through life, Jesus says, Luke 17, verse 10, we have done that which was our duty to do. The Roman Catholics come up with a concept of works of supererogation, they're called. Works of supererogation. Which is a concept that if, if we do good works through life over and above, perhaps what is our duty, that those good works somehow make up for our past sins. That's a figment of man's imagination. It's nowhere in Scripture. The best works that we do, the best prayers, the most sincere worship do not, does not make up for our past sins. It's simply our duty. And therefore, 
we cannot satisfy. But that was just speaking hypothetically. The fact of the matter is, you cannot stop sinning from this day forward. You and I have a sinful nature, as you know, even tainting all of our best works. And perfect love is required. And so the catechism is correct when it says we daily increase our debt. Not only do we have past sins that we must still suffer for, but daily, each and every sin makes this side of the scale all the more heavy. We daily increase our debt of suffering. And if you think about it, and you're honest with yourself, all of your attempts and all of my attempts through life to satisfy God's justice in our pride only compounds the problem. So I preach unto you this morning, beloved. Let us repent. And yes, daily we need to do this to repent of all of our proud, self-righteous attempts to satisfy God. And let us lean wholly upon the only one that can. The Catechism asked, secondly, about God's justice being satisfied. Can there be another? Either by ourselves or by another? Can another be found outside of ourselves to satisfy God's justice for us? That's the second option to consider. The unbelieving Jews of Judaism imagined and still do today, that animal sacrifices can somehow satisfy God's justice. Understand that in the Old Testament, the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not have the same religion as the Jews, the unbelieving Jews of today. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, along with the other believers of the Old Testament, did not see the animals, the bulls, the goats, the lambs of themselves as able to suffer the wrath of God for their sins and to make atonement. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament believers knew the concept of Hebrews, Hebrews 10 verse 4, that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. They saw the animals as a picture as a type, as a symbol of the only way of satisfaction of God's justice. By faith they did. By the same faith we have today. But Judaism of today imagines that the offerings of bulls and goats can somehow satisfy God's justice. That's paganism. That's folly. 
And the Catechism explains why in answer 14, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. God's justice demands that the one who committed the sin suffer. And animals have not committed the sin. Man has. And thus man must suffer. Isaiah 53.11 says, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. That's what must happen. And animals don't have souls. The human soul must travail for God to be satisfied. But it's not only animals that man has attempted to use for the satisfaction of God. A foolish mankind tries to come up with other options. In the history of Israel, you remember, and even in this world, men and women have tried to bring a human sacrifice that which God said has not even entered into His mind that man should do. But not only is it horrible, a horrible idea, but it is vanity for human sacrifice to satisfy God's justice doesn't work. For as the Catechism says, to sustain in himself the burden of God's wrath. That's what a man must do. Sustain in himself the burden of God's wrath. Can one man do that? Even if he was a perfect man? Take upon himself infinite, extreme suffering and fully suffer it until it's finished. Can a mere man do that? No. No. A mere creature cannot. A mere creature, if he tried, would simply suffer and continue to suffer forever and ever and ever and ever and never come to the end of that suffering for us and thus never satisfy. Psalm 49 verse 7 puts it this way, none of them, we sang of this, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. There is no other way Beloved, this is not just theoretical. This is not just something that you think about and say, yep, we're right, everyone else is wrong, and they think of other ways to satisfy God's justice. This is extremely practical for you and me. You cannot seek to satisfy God yourself, and you need to stop trying, and I need to stop trying. And every time we find ourselves trying, we need to repent. And turn to Jesus Christ again. 
And you and I need to stop looking to anyone else, any human being, whether it be a preacher in the church, as good of a preacher that he may be, as our figurehead, or people in the church that we think, they are so good for us. They cannot satisfy for you. You are alone. If you seek satisfaction with anybody else, you must wholly lean on the one, the only one that God has provided, and that is Jesus Christ. To lean on anyone else and to lean on any of your good works is unbelief. It will only lead to destruction. There is no way but one. In this one way, you know, is Jesus Christ. The gospel is familiar to you. We need one, the catechism explains, who is very mad, perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is also very God. And you know who that is. You know who that is now. But a point before I go at length on this. You and I could not come to an understanding of who this one is. Except God show this gospel to you. Stand in awe of this. The gospel might be familiar to you today. You know who this one man is, who is very man, perfectly righteous, and very God, able to satisfy for you. But of yourselves, this is hidden from your minds. The human heart cannot conceive of this gospel himself. The human mind could not with his own logic and philosophy come up with the truth that he needs one who is very God and very man and perfectly righteous as our substitute to suffer everything necessary and to live a perfect life of love for us. Get this, young people, you who think you might be so smart, not only could you not only could you and I not satisfy God's justice ourselves, not only could we not supply someone to satisfy God's justice for us, we also could not imagine, we could not conceive of the idea of someone to do this. The angels in heaven could not come up with this gospel. But God Himself must. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 says, It is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. Now that passage is often applied to the things of heaven that we cannot conceive of heavenly glory because it's so great, the half of which is not told us. But that text does not only apply to heavenly glory we could not conceive of ourselves. That text applies first of all to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only one that can satisfy. You and I 
of ourselves have our minds so darkened that our eye could not see and our ear cannot hear and our heart cannot conceive of this one man, perfectly righteous and yet also very God. We would have been fools doddering about in darkness in this world, either ignoring the gospel or trying to satisfy God's justice ourselves. This is the wisdom and the mercy of God to you, beloved. He has sent the only one who could satisfy God's justice for you. He has conceived, that is in his mind, the Savior from eternity, sent him in the fullness of time, to do that work and then shine the glorious light of the gospel into your heart so that you who could not conceive of this Savior yourself come to an understanding by faith. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the transgression of us, God's people, he was stricken. And God saw the travail of this righteous man's soul. And ah, God is satisfied with us. His name is Jesus. And there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Cling desperately to Him, beloved. Cling desperately to Him. There is no way but one. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them to be notified as future messages are published. We welcome you to join us on Sundays for worship at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org. Also, you can follow us on our Hope Protestant Reformed Church Facebook page, and you can email the Reform Witness Committee with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.